The aim of the Folklore Podcast is to bring quality folklore discussion and world-class guests to its audience completely free of charge. As such, we do not carry adverts and do not accept sponsorship. You tell us you prefer it this way. In return, we rely on your support to continue making episodes of the podcast. Without it, we cannot keep going. If you enjoy the Folklore Podcast, please consider clicking the donate button at thefolklorepodcast.com or signing up for a small monthly contribution in return for exclusive content and rewards at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot help in this way, please share our episodes on social media and leave positive reviews for the podcast in your app of choice. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. Tomorrow is St Valentine's Day, all in the morning betime. And I am made at your window, to be your valentine. Those lines are spoken by Ophelia, in Act 4, Scene 5 of Shakespeare's Hamlet. At the time that she's speaking, it is February the 13th, Valentine's Eve, and Ophelia is looking ahead to the next day where she is allowed to woo the male suitor instead of the normal way around for the time. Traditionally, only this date and the last day of February in a leap year may be used for this purpose. There are many traditions and beliefs associated with Valentine's Day across many cultures. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author, and today on the Folklore Podcast we look at this romantic time of year, beginning with its non-romantic origins. I don't want to dwell too deeply on the historic origins of Valentine's Day itself. I would note that, as with many origin stories, nothing is certain. Different accounts profess to be the correct one, and this is worth bearing in mind especially when the inevitable memes hit your social media about this and other times of year with important calendar dates. Evidence is always useful. Folklorist Jacqueline Simpson suggests that the actual dating of February the 14th emerged in medieval times and most likely in Europe. It was here at this point that it was decided that birds began mating in mid-February and the 14th was settled on as the first day that this happened. We can perhaps see a very tenuous link to the romantic elements of the modern Valentine's Day. Nobody knows why that particular date was chosen, but it is the case also that in Slovenia it's said to be the first day of spring. Relating to this belief regarding mating birds, 
it is worth noting that one of the edible gifts that was common to give for Valentine's Day in the medieval period was the quail egg. It was common practice in this period of history to assign a saint's day to any date of significance in the calendar year. February the 14th could be dedicated to either of two Roman martyrs who are both called Valentinus. Neither of these has any connection to ideas of love. Bollandist monks from Belgium who published the Acta Sanatorium, The Lives of the Saints, in the 17th century, suggest that there might in fact be two different versions of one saint's legend, with one appearing in Rome and the other in Terni, Italy. If the medieval gentleman had a partner and wished to get married, or was already married and wanted to strengthen the relationship on Valentine's Day, then there was, as for many things at this time, a recipe which could be employed. Elixirs at this time often utilised ingredients which were believed to have an effect on the humours in the body. One medieval love potion included musk and myrtle, along with garlic and onions. If that doesn't sound to your taste, then another, dating from the 16th century, was made by squashing earthworms into leeks, the whole then being eaten. For a fascinating record of the year and its customs, it is always worth referring to the well-known Book of Days. Written by the prolific Scottish author Robert Chambers and published in 1869, the book recorded a miscellany of popular antiquities in connection with the calendar. At the time, it was a useful almanac. Now, it is an interesting snapshot into our past and a valuable point of reference for a folklorist or social historian. Chambers' Book of Days starts its section on St Valentine's Day with the following observation. Valentine's Day is now almost everywhere a much degenerated festival, the only observance of any note consisting merely of the sending of jocular anonymous letters to parties whom one wishes to quiz, and this confined very much to the humbler classes. In the early 1700s, a much more ancient custom was recorded, where maids and bachelors would gather together on the eve of February the 14th. They would write their names on small billets, which were then mixed up and exchanged. The men would then provide treats and entertainment for the girl whose billet they received. These names would be worn for the next few days, pinned to the chest or sleeve. This might perhaps have been done in the same way that medieval knights tied a handkerchief from a lady whose honour they were defending in a joust around their arm. This practice gives us the origin of the phrase, wear your heart on your sleeve. Samuel Pepys's diary records as early as 1660 a Valentine's party he attended for friends and family where names were written on pieces of paper and lots drawn in this way. He also notes the custom of the first person being seen on February the 14th being one's intended valentine. In 1662, he writes that 
his wife covered her eyes to avoid seeing workmen at their home on this date. When Shakespeare had Titania, the Queen of the Fairies, wake and fall in love with Nick Bottom the Weaver, who had been enchanted with the head of an ass, it is this piece of Valentine folklore which he was drawing from. The jocular anonymous letters to which Robert Chambers is referring in his writing are, of course, the early Valentine's card. The first commercially produced cards appeared around the year 1840 and would have been at the height of their popularity when the Book of Days was published. In the United Kingdom, they had almost died out by the 1890s, but they continued to be popular in the United States. The end of the Second World War brought about a resurgence in the United Kingdom. This was probably inspired by US servicemen who would have been stationed here at the time. As well as recording important historical notes on the calendar year and its events and customs, Chambers would sometimes include traditional beliefs or practices regarding the significant dates that he was discussing. With Valentine's Day, he didn't get much further than the drawing of names on paper slips, which I've already mentioned. But there is a plethora of wonderful old folklore around this time of year, and I've collected a number of examples for you to enjoy. In my area of the southwest United Kingdom, boys and girls would often go to the local church porch at 12.30pm on Valentine's Eve. As the clock struck, they would run home, dropping hempseed and reciting a rhyme. The spirit of their intended partner was said to appear, wearing a shroud and raking up the seeds. Interestingly, a similar practice also involving a hempseed rhyme is found recorded in the county of Derbyshire, further north in the UK. There, a girl went to the churchyard at midnight, and when the clock struck, she began running around the church twelve times. While she did this, she would say, I sow hempseed, hempseed I sow. He that loves me best, come after me and mow. On the last circuit of the church, the image of her lover was believed to appear and follow her. Important calendar dates often had divination customs attached to them. If a girl wanted to know if she would be wed in the coming year, then she should look through the keyhole of her front door at this time. If she caught sight of a hen and a cockbird together, then the answer was yes. If she then wanted to know who the groom would be, then there was a method she could employ for this too. She should write the letters of the alphabet on pieces of paper and float them in a bowl of water. After this, she should place a pair of shoes in front of the bowl in the shape of a T. After reciting a verse and moving the shoes three times, some of the letters would be found face up in the bowl in the morning. These would signify the initials of the man. A simpler method was to sleep with yarrow under the pillow. The first man seen when she left the house the next day would be her betrothed. You may not, of course, want to get married at all. If this was the case, then an easy way of avoiding it was to pick a snowdrop before February the 14th. You would then stay single for the rest of the year. Folklore collector Ethel Rudkin 
recorded a similar divination custom at Gainsborough in Lincolnshire in the 1930s to the example of Yarrow on the Pillow. In this case, the plant of choice was bay. On the eve of St Valentine's Day, the instruction to a girl was to pin bay leaves to her pillow, one at each corner and a fifth in the middle. She would then dream of her future lover, or the man that she was to marry. Other forms of divination are found in different geographical areas. In Kent, for example, the ashes of a fire would be used for this purpose. This is a well-known form of divination for different things around the world throughout history. The practice is known as spodomancy. Rhymes and verses are often found in old customs relating to Valentine's Day. Earlier, I mentioned the note in Samuel Pepys's diary about the belief that the first person that you saw on February the 14th would be your intended. In some places, the first man that you met on Valentine's morning should be greeted with Good morning, Valentine. Curl your hair as I do mine. Two in front and two behind. Good morning, Valentine. The phrase two in front and two behind refers to a custom where the girls in a party dressed a boy as a girl. One account of this says, Two or three of the girls select one of the youngest among them, generally a boy, whom they deck out more gaily than the rest and place at their head. The wishing of a good morning or similar is common in many of these Valentine's traditions. In the county of Norfolk in the 18th century, Parson James Woodford would give a penny to every child in the parish who said, Good morrow, Valentine, on the correct day. We must wonder if this was less a celebration of the day itself and more a way of trying to instil good manners in the youth of the parish. But we find the greeting in many other places. We've spoken about house visiting customs a number of times on the podcast before, relating to mumming traditions, for example as well as in an examination of the Marie Fluid tradition, and obviously at Halloween. House visiting used to also be common in Valentine's Day celebrations too. Children would house visit and collect money, reciting the verse, Good morrow to you, Valentine. First tis yours, and then tis mine. So please, to give me a valentine. A variation of this rhyme recorded in the counties of Northampton and Rutland was Morrow, morrow, Valentine. First is yours and then tis mine. So please to give a Valentine. Holly and Ivy tickle my toe. Give me red apple and let me go. This seems to borrow randomly from Christmas symbols in its mention of the Holly and Ivy. An example from the county of Berkshire puts us in mind more of some of the mumming verses which we heard in the recent episode on this subject. Knock the kittle agin the pan, gear us a penny if he can. We be ragged and you be vine, please to gear us a valentine. Up we a kettle, down we the spout, gear us a penny and we'll gear out. In North Reps in Norfolk, it's recorded that children would visit the chief houses of the area early in the morning of February the 14th, where they would sing Good morrow, Valentine, how it do hail. When father's pig die, yow shall hay its tail. 
Good morrow, Valentine, how thundering hot. When father's pig die, yow shall ha its jot. The jot is the tripe or intestines of the pig. And while this may sound unpleasant to us now, this was considered a delicacy among the poor in Norfolk at the time. We may find slightly more pleasant food mentioned in north parts of Northants, where godparents used to give their godchildren sweet currant buns on the Sunday before and after Valentine's Day. In Rutland, lozenge-shaped buns called shittles were given to both children and old people on February the 14th. In some places, presents are associated with Valentine traditions which are quite separate from those exchanged by lovers or potential suitors. In the county of Norfolk again, parents would leave a present on the doorstep for their children. This present would be from Old Father Valentine, or Jack Valentine. I'll quote an example of this in a moment, but first let's just pause and think about the name Jack Valentine for a moment. The name Jack appears a lot in folk tales and lore. We might think of the Jack-o'-lantern at Halloween, or Jack and Jill, the Jack who was nimble and jumped over a candlestick, or Jack and his beanstalk. Why is the name so common? Where does it come from? Have you ever stopped to consider? Jack used to be a shortened version of Jacob, but also comes from the Old English Jan, and the Germanic equivalent Jankin, that is, the kin of Jan, from which we get the more modern version of John. Jack as a contraction still relates to this too. The folk stories come from a collection which is known as the Jack Tales. Quite simply, the name comes about because it was one of the most common Christian names in the English-speaking world. And so Jack became a shorthand for a man or some guy. Back to the presence on the doorstep. Norfolk resident Carrie Coleman recalled her memories of the Jack Valentine tradition. We eagerly waited for Mr Valentine every year, but we never figured out how it was done, as both my parents would be sat watching TV. I found out later that one of the other dads on the street we were friends with would do it, and all the dads would take turns to do other people's houses, but never do their own. A final, somewhat unusual note about Valentines in the United Kingdom. This was recorded in the Daily Chronicle newspaper, but the extract is undated and so I cannot place what period in time this comes from. Nor have I found much more detail, and so if anyone is able to shed any more light on the idea, then I'd love to hear from you. You can email thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com. The story relates to pigeons. The Daily Chronicle text says, There is or was a strange story which connects the London pigeon with St Valentine's Day. As every believer knows, one never sees a dead donkey. So, too, every believer knows, or may be convinced, that one never sees a dead London pigeon, outside of a police court or a poulterer's shop. Yet, the porters of the Middle Temple were accustomed to say, in the days of our youth, and may still do so, that they pick up dead cock pigeons sometimes on St Valentine's morning in the gardens. The much-degenerated festival to which Robert Chambers was referring, as we heard at the beginning of this piece, 
had much to do with the, to his mind, common practice of sending love messages or greetings on Valentine's Day. Elaborate cards find their origins in America in the Civil War. Here, soldiers who were away fighting could send messages home to their partners on papers which featured lace flaps which would open. Concealed behind these were romantic pictures of military couples. Now, over one billion cards are sent every Valentine's Day in the United States alone. Not all messages recorded on Valentine's Day are sweet and loving. One example, drawn from the Library of Congress files from 1867, records this response to a man's proposal by Valentine. You're very kind and thoughtful. And believe me, so am I. For if I should ever marry you, I surely hope you'd die. Another intriguing example from the early 20th century from the same files reads Ma, she says it's awful. Pa, he thinks it's sin. But gee, when I think of your sweet lips... The last line is missing. Moving around the cultures of the world, we find very different examples of the Valentine celebrations. In Korea, for example, the date of the 14th is still important, but February the 14th is only one of the 12 love days that are celebrated. Traditionally, women would give men chocolates on the February date as a sign of affection, whereas on March the 14th, White Day, it was the man's turn to treat the lady. As with many traditions, retail has been slowly chipping away at this, and now targets both men and women on both dates. Of course, not everyone will have a partner, in which case the April date, Black Day, is better suited. On April the 14th, single people who did not receive a gift in the previous months are supposed to meet up with others in the same position to eat black noodles, although young people in Korea deny that this is actually the case for the most part. The other monthly days of celebration for Korean couples are running from May to January, Rose Day, Kiss Day, Silver Day, Green Day, Photo Day, Wine Day, Movie Day, and Hug Day. Some February the 14th celebrations in other countries centre more around food and drink. One example is Ghana, where up until the end of the 20th century, Valentine celebrations were not particularly a feature of the culture at all. This began to change after the Millennium celebrations, when the Western world began to become better known to the Ghanaians. Gradually, Valentine parties and other traditions began to creep in, and in 2007, the government recognised this and realised that there was economic potential to be had. They therefore pronounced February the 14th as National Chocolate Day. Ghana is one of the largest cocoa-producing countries in the world, and this was an ideal chance to promote this fact. Until this time, the increasing popularity of Valentine's Day in Ghana had been frowned upon by the church, who saw it as unnecessarily promiscuous. 
but there was now a more acceptable angle on which to focus. As the churches began to organise more events themselves around the chocolate theme of the day, it grew in popularity and is now an important part of the calendar year in Ghana. In Bulgaria, Valentine's Day is also celebrated on February the 14th, but it also includes a lot of wine rather than chocolate. This is because it shares the date with an older and more traditional celebration, that of Trifon Zaratzen. Saint Trifon is a martyred saint who has many similarities with the Valentinus stories from the Roman period which we have already mentioned. Born in Phrygia, the point of origin of wine, which leads to Trifon Zaratzen being the day of winemakers, he was a healer who famously cured the daughter of Roman Emperor Gordian III. Although lauded for this at the time, the following emperor, Trajan Decius, was not so pleased. He persecuted Christians, including Trifon, who died by his sword in the year 248 AD. In the modern day, many couples will favour Valentine's Day celebrations, whereas those who do not have partners, or who don't take the romantic approach, favour the older customs associated with Trifon's day, which is a religious holiday. In the old celebrations, the men of the village take food and wine to the vineyard, and perform a fertility ritual which is not unlike the wassailing traditions which we've discussed in an earlier episode of the podcast. Following this, one man is chosen to be king of the vineyard and is presented with wreaths to wear. He's taken by the other men with musical accompaniment to all the houses in the village where the womenfolk will present them with wine and a blessing. We can see a lot of similarities with other folk traditions in the whole of the Trifon Zaratzan custom. Romanian celebrations take place a few days later, on February the 24th, and are a coming together of Valentine's Day ideas and traditions associated with the beginning of spring. The Romanian title of their Valentine's Day, Dragobet, comes from a local deity who we in the West might compare with Cupid. On this day, young men and women would go out and pick flowers in the forests. These would later be used to make love potions. Those boys who found strawberry flowers were considered to be the most fortunate, as these had magical properties. They would make these into small bouquets, which they would place into the water which the girls used to wash their hair. Others would wash their faces with snow as a sign of good luck for the coming year, and in some villages blood rituals were even performed. Boys and girls would cut a small cross on their forearms, which they would press together to become blood brothers or sisters. Many other countries have their own individual takes on the celebration of love in both modern traditions and older ones. Not all of these take place around the common February the 14th date, but they occur throughout the year, and they're often based around older celebrations, such as some of those we've just looked at, rather than the modern, commercialised version, which we see so much today. Instead of the modern retail angle, maybe we should take a leaf out of Finland's book when it comes to Valentine's Day. 
here. It is a celebration of friendship, and it is common to exchange greetings or gifts with your best friends. The ethos is more to show these people what they mean to you, an approach which can be very supportive and beneficial to anyone who is going through a difficult time. The world needs more of this sort of approach these days. Be nice to those you love. And to everyone else too. Verses in this podcast were read by Tracy Norman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is written and presented by me, Mark Norman. To find out more about my research and writing, visit www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore or on Twitter with the handle at Mr underscore Mark underscore Norman. Research assistance is provided by Tracy Norman. Visit her website at www.tracynormanswitch.com to follow her historical research and projects. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to and tries to avoid annoying advertising or sponsorship messages, but it cannot sustain itself. We are grateful for the support of all of our patrons who, for as little as $1 a month, earn themselves great rewards whilst ensuring our future. For more details, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. If you cannot support us in this way, please share the episodes on your social media and leave positive reviews. This really helps the audience for the podcast to grow. Visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com for more episode and guest information, to buy from the web store, or to sign up for free newsletters or get in touch. The Folklore Podcast theme music was written and performed by Gurdy Bird. Thanks for listening.